it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 9th, 2012. Well, this program was pre-recorded ahead of time. Today's a travel day for me. And so I'm just going to introduce today's edition of Fighting for the Faith and then turn it over to our guest lecturer as I travel to Oslo, Minnesota. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. God has given us an objective revelation. It doesn't sit inside of your heart. It actually sits in the words of Scripture. It can be known. And anybody who calls themselves a Christian actually is bound to what God has revealed in his word. Your heart, your feelings, your experiences, your subjective liver shivers, your religious trances, none of that trumps God's word. God's word is sure and certain, and it is to be believed, not rejected. You do not exalt your subjective feelings or whatever above what God has revealed. That is to make your experience, your ideas, well, to place them above what God has said. When your experiences come in conflict with what God has revealed, your experiences must give way. And you bend the knee to what God has revealed because God is true. Men are liars. And your heart, even you unregenerate Christians, still struggle with a sinful and wicked heart from which flows all kinds of evil, idolatry, adultery, murder, theft, you name it. All of that still burbles up from within your old Adam and wars against the spirit that God has made in you as he, when he raised you from the dead through the preaching of his gospel. So understand this, you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your feelings. You can't trust what's inside of you. You must look outside, look to the cross, look to God's word, and believe what God has revealed in his word. Then, then, then you will grow in your knowledge and depth of understanding of God, and God the Holy Spirit will produce good fruit in your life as a result of that word. That word is what your faith feeds on. Feed it the word. Don't feed it your experiences. Knock that stuff off. All right. We um, Here's what we're doing today. Um, I'm going to be playing a, a, a another lecture from Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis of uh, uh, Concordia University, Irvine. He's a history professor, and uh, in the past he's been uh, teaching through a series of lessons about Christianity in America. And uh, recently they've fired up uh, some more uh, lectures from Dr. Van Voorhis. We are not going to play all of them. But uh, today we're going to be playing the next in the series entitled Christianity America, Fundamentalism and Modernism in the 20th Century, which is a fascinating lecture. And this is going to be without commercial interruption. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. And at the end, I, we're going to just have the music uh, take us out of the program. Uh, why? Well, because I'm actually... Uh, by the time you hear this, I'm on the ground somewhere in Minnesota, uh, near the uh, d uh, North Dakota, uh, Minnesota border, uh, in the northern uh, regions, if you would. So, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing a series of lectures this uh, tomorrow, actually, on uh, on discernment and talking about a plethora of topics. So, uh, if you have an opportunity to visit Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota, you know, uh, you know, visit their website and uh, let them know you're coming. All right, so without any further ado, here is Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, Christianity in America, fundamental, Fundamentalism and Modernism in the Early 20th Century. Here we go. Well, let's go ahead and, and uh, get started. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to be with you uh, again. It's been quite some time since I've been with you. Uh, we took a, a break. We did about four weeks of the church in America. Uh, if you can remember, if you were around, if you were even a member then, uh, this, is, this was last year, uh, the end of last summer. Today, I, I want to do a, a little bit of a brief recap of what was done 
Um, but of course, you can go to faithcapo.com, and all of these are, uh, we have them all on video. Uh, and so you can, if you wanted to, I suppose you could watch them. Uh, also, we've got handouts. Uh, you could download them there. Uh, so today, I'm going to start with a recap, and then we're going to start in the 20th century with fundamentalism and modernism in the church. Of course, uh, I've said before that the, the whole goal of here, or the whole goal of, of this thing is not just to have a history professor come and talk to you about history, but rather it's uh, to, to try and figure out who we are to figure out what, what's peculiar about the church in America broadly, and then we can start asking questions about the Lutheran church, the LCMS in America. I had a student in my office just on Friday. Uh, she came in and she said, um, uh, was getting ready for a paper, and she started right off the bat by saying, Dr. Van Voris, I, I'm, I'm not a history person. And, and I get this sometime, and I said, okay, I, all right. Um, do you have parents? And actually, as soon as I said, do you have parents, I thought maybe there had been a terrible fire and it just would be a, you know, awful question to ask. She said yes. Uh, and I, the grandparents? Yeah, great-grandparents? Okay, fantastic. And they're from someplace? Okay. So you actually have a history. And she sort of shook her, yeah, I suppose. Okay. Are you interested in anything? Yes? All right. Then you are a history person. So I'm telling you that this morning, that you are, in fact, a history person, just like this girl finally came around uh, to say, all right, I think, I think history is important. And, in fact, it is very true and very important, sometimes, especially as Lutherans, especially in the LCMS, sometimes we sort of turn in on ourselves. We don't know a lot about the outside world, and some of that is, re- is good. Uh, it's, 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 it can be wacky out there. Uh, but some of us, for a living, uh, put our toes in those waters, and so we can tell you uh, a little bit about w- where we've come from. So today we're talking about uh, Christianity in America, fundamentalism, and modernism in the early 20th century. So if you look at uh, the, where we've started, and this is just a very brief recap, we started by looking at the English colonies in the 17th century. Now, you can go back even further on faithcapital.com and see some lessons on the Reformation and the 16th century and pietism, but we started this lesson in the New World with the Puritans coming to New England, setting up the Presbyterian uh, um, congregational-style church, John Winthrop, he came on the Arbella in 1630. He wrote a very famous piece entitled The Model of Christian Charity, which is this idea of the church working together with the state to form, well, perhaps some kind of theocracy. That is, a church, a state that is run by a church. Roger Williams would come along, seeing a place for religious freedom, right? That's what we're taught in school. The pilgrims came over for religious freedom, and they were but their kind of religious freedom. Uh, Roger Williams found that out uh, when he had a little bit of a different take on Protestantism. Uh, He wrote The Bloody Tenet of Persecution and was soon exiled uh, to Rhode Island. So, uh, you know, there was some um, uh, persecution. Now, if you heard the sermon this morning, or if you're going to hear the sermon this morning, uh, Pastor talked a good bit about Israel. And the pilgrims saw themselves as a new Israel, and America as a new Israel. And throughout all of these sermons and letters that we get from the early colonists, we see America is a new Israel. We see these colonists as having an idea that they're to be called out of Egypt, that is, Europe, into the new world, into the promised land. And so there's all sorts of... of, of uh, uh, allusion to themselves as the chosen people of God, as a p- particularly chosen people of God. And so there's this radical separatism which starts the American church right off the bat. Right from the get-go, there's a radical separatism. Now, I wrote corporate because it's a corporate separatism. They're not just themselves. It's just themselves together as a group, not as individuals. There is a conditioned individualism. That is, it's, it's all about you. Now, there's Puritan conditions on those, of course, so don't get crazy. Uh, but you can see from the very early bit of the 17th century the themes that we're going to see over and over again. We then moved into rationalism and revivalism. And if you've been to... Um, uh, 
some Bible studies, if you've read some books, you know that there is the revivalism, right? Whether it be Jonathan Edwards or Whitfield or what have you. And then there's rationalism and that's the enlightenment. And both in confessional circles, we scratch our heads about, we say, oh, rationalism, the enlightenment, bad, revivalism, big tense and calliope music, bad. Uh, what's scarier? Which one's worse? Can we just go hide? Well, as Lutherans, that's always the answer, and we go hide. But it, the answer that I suggested a few weeks back ago on that video uh, is that, that actually it's the, the revivalism that's more dangerous to the church in America than the rationalism. It's the revivalism which is more dangerous. Of course, this is the time of uh, church and state questions being asked because this is the era of state building. This is the era of our founding fathers. And so, of course, uh, we talked a little bit about the founding documents and is this a Christian nation or not? Something very important for today's lesson on fundamentalism. And I said that church and state questions, uh, we don't have a lot explicit in our founding documents regarding theology in the church, not because it wasn't important, but because it was too important. It was too important. So we ran through the 18th century. I'm going very quickly here. Like I said, you can go to faithcapo.com and, uh, and see the, at least the handouts that make these a little bit more uh, precise. As we move from the Enlightenment rationalism and revivalism, revivalism gets together with something called romanticism. Oh, and it's a sticky cauldron. In this, we get a, a number of characters. Friedrich Schleiermacher. Have any of you ever heard of Friedrich Schleiermacher? Good, good, fantastic. May it, may it stay that way. Um, Schleiermacher is a German theologian. They're known for being bad. And <clears throat> we, we've got Schleiermacher who's bringing in a sort of German higher criticism. Uh, uh, to, but it's a higher, it's a higher criticism. But the, the real point is, is a sort of existential relationship that you have with, with God and, and, and Jesus apart from any external means. But it's real academic in German. Then over here in America, we have Henry Ward Beecher, we have Charles Finney, we have a number of American revivalist slash romantics that are going to pick up on that 17th century theme of individualism and you alone and radical separatism from the church. And they're going to start to deviate from uh, doctrines. They're going to start to deviate from historic Christianity. We saw that in about a 30-year period, we had everyone from the Seventh-day Adventists to the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Baha'is, all of the major cults in America we saw pop up in a small, small window. And as a historian, we have to ask, I have to ask the question, is that just coincidence that the major cults in America all popped up within about a 30 to 40 year span in American history? What does it coincide with? Romanticism, revivalism, the idea that you don't need doctrine or someone else telling you. It's just about you and your, your guts. <clears throat> I asked the question of heresy and schism. Which is worse? Now, this is a tricky question. and It's one that American Christians oftentimes uh, will answer without giving much thought. What is worse, heresy or schism? And uh, uh, the first thing that people will say, uh, even a, a good friend of mine who's a colleague and a, a, a pastor and a historian uh, said, schism. And I said, wrong, C.J. Armstrong, uh, wrong, uh, friend, uh, wrong. <coughs> I need to edit that out in post. Um, wrong. No, it's not, it's not schism, it's heresy. That is, is it union? We've got union. And we've got truth. And if it comes down to it, which one needs to, to remain? Truth. Is schism a bad thing? Yeah, absolutely. Should it be avoided at every, almost every cost? Yes, almost every cost, but not at the expense of truth. And we had some, a number of schisms, and we're going to talk about that. That's the main uh, theme for today are these schisms. But one of the very significant, significant groups for American Christianity met in upstate New York at the Niagara Bible Conference. 
the Niagara Bible Conference. And here is where they took some other English ideas about the end times, eschatology, and started to put together an evangelical theology, a conservative theology, but at the center of it, you could argue, was eschatology, the end times. Go to uh, your local Christian bookstore, and you'll find a doctrine section and a diet section and a what have you, a trinket section, and look for the end time section. You probably won't have to look very long. It's going to be very large. What, were this, what was the series in the 90s, the Left Behind series that everyone was uh, reading? Um, I don't, I don't, uh, the only person I know that read it was Dr. Francisco. He did. Um, and that's true. So ask him about it. Um, but the, uh, yeah, he's not here. It's fine. It's eschatology became the center, one could argue, of this evangelical theology at the Niagara Bible Conference. And dispensationalism became the way through which we viewed the Bible. Now, it's, of course, very important, and the Bible talks about that we know that Jesus is coming back, and we're going to talk about that as a fundamental of the Christian faith, but that is not the center of our faith. Uh, Lutherans, historically, have been very bad at eschatology, or at least quiet when it, come to, when it comes to end times talk, uh, and, and there might be some wisdom in there uh, to, to be silent. But the Niagara Bible Conference, uh, the dispensationalists, this is Darby. And Schofield, maybe you know the Schofield Study Reference Bible. You'll see it's a very, very popular study Bible. And so as this is happening at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century, we're going to start to run into a, a weird time, both culturally, historically, and historically, and then theologically for the church. And so that's what I want to look at today. Fundamentalism and modernism. Fundamentalism. This is very, very difficult to, uh, to, to define. Historian George Marsden has suggested that perhaps a fundamentalist uh, is an evangelical that is angry about something. That's all they are. It's just an angry evangelical that wants to hit you over the head with something. He's a very good historian. And he, this, is, this is tongue-in-cheek. But that's oftentimes the way we look at fundamentalists. We don't know much. We just know. Just quiet. Stop. Right? Fundamentalists, they're, they're bothersome. They're just angry about something. But we have some sort of kinship to them. I mean, they're not the, the sort of modernists. They're not atheists. But we don't, re- we don't want to go to parties with them. You know? <laughs> And they, I don't think they go to parties. Uh, at least the, the caricature of the, fundamentals, of the fundamentalist that we get today. Well, the very term fundamentalist, if you go to the Oxford uh, Encyclopedia of Theology or Philosophy or what have you, uh, it will tell you that a fundamentalist is uh, a rigid, unbending, um, <clears throat> dogmatic so-and-so uh, who's closed to, to any conversation or... I mean, this, is, uh, this is the Oxford Encyclopedias. I was looking these up, and, and I couldn't use any of these uh, as helpful definitions. It's very hard. I had a student uh, who I, I worked with for a while trying to define this. What is it? I might ask that student later if they're here. Well, the fundamentals comes back to two Texas millionaires who saw that something was happening in the church and we needed to to state as conservatives what we believe. So these Texas millionaires, they were raised with the dispensationalist theology. They would go on to start a school uh, called the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola. But these men were um, on the side of conservative Christianity. And so they got all the different people they could get together, all the theologians, the conservative theologians, to write a four-volume set of books called the Fundamentals. That's where the word comes from. That's what a fundamentalist is. Now, today, what is a fun- we talk about an Islamic fundamentalist. We talk about this fundamentalist or that fundamentalist. Historically, a fundamentalist is someone that holds to the doctrine in these four books. More accurately, it is a pastor who would sign on to something that would say, here are the five points. 
Here are the five things on which we are unbending. Number one, the inspiration and the infallibility of the Bible. The Bible is trustworthy. The deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, that is, Jesus didn't just come and die as an example, but he actually took sin, our sin, on him as a substitute and atoned for our sins. The, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. And then, finally, um, some say it's the miracles of Christ is the fifth point. And then other documents would have that it's the personal second coming. Now, there's nothing on there about premillennial, postmillennial, rapture, left behind, Kirk Cameron, none of that. There's nothing in there. Uh, it just says that he's coming, uh, not in our hearts at the end of time, but he's actually coming in, in, um, uh, in person. And so historic Christianity, creedal Christianity would look at this and say, yeah. So should one be afraid of the fundamentalists? Not historically. Not historically. But of course, this is going to, to turn into something, into what we find with uh, the moral majority and, and, and things that you're more familiar with today. To understand the fundamentalists, we obviously need to understand who they were fighting against. They were fighting against these folks called the modernists. What's a modernist? I have no idea. I, I don't, it, I'm modern, you're modern, they're modern. It's very difficult. Uh, go to the dictionary or the, uh, the internet and try and look up modernism, and it's going to talk about modern art, modern music, modern thought. And there's a, so modernism is a very strange phrase. When we talk about modernism here, <clears throat> we can talk about it generally. Modernism is a movement which came out of the 18th century which generally supported change. The retirement of the old, the discarding of the old, in, forward, in, in favor of the new and the avant-garde. That's what a modernist was. And so there's modernist architecture and modernist music and modernist art, and, and some of it is quite fantastic. When it comes to theology, modernist theology was doing away with the old and ushering in the new. And that's problematic when you're dealing with a faith that is historic and based in creeds. And so with the, the higher critical view of the Bible, theological modernism at its core was anti-supernatural. That's the easiest way to answer that. Did Jesus, was he God and man and this? And, what's the answer to, for the modernist? <clears throat> nope. Well, was the Bible written, I mean, did Moses or, or St. Paul or, what's the answer? Nope. Okay, but Jesus in the, the stone, it was big enough, but he was able to in the, nope. Why? Are they just killjoys? No, because they have as a preset that the supernatural cannot happen. Miracles don't happen. It's a preset. And so as soon as you talk anything about a miracle or something happening, <coughs> pardon me, the theological modernist in the teens and 20s would say, nope, because they had that presupposition. So by modernism, we'll say those who are anti-supernatural and those who want to do away with the old in favor of the new. When we get to post-modernism, uh, my head will explode. <laughs> One of the most fascinating, I think, one of the most fascinating times in American history, one of the most fascinating time periods is the 1920s and the 1930s. This is when all of this stuff happened, the fundamentalist modernist split. If you look at Time magazines, if you look at the New York Times, uh, the um, uh, Washington Post, look at the magazines in the 1920s and 30s, theological church issues were front page issues. Right next to Teapot Dome scandal or what else, uh, the other big historical events, what was happening in the church was front page stuff. 
because people realized there was a shift. There was a change. There was a, 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 this was a watershed moment where we had these new fundamentalists on one side and these modernists on the other. But this fits in with a, a, a bunch of change. This time period post-World War I is unlike any other time in American history. Virginia Woolf wrote, In or about 1910, human character changed. Willa Cather, The World Broken Two in 1922 or Thereabouts. And a modern historian, Jacques Barzin, wrote that by 1918, heaven storming was cut off by the wall of the war. I, I could talk for a long time, I promise I won't, uh, about the late 19th century into the teens and the 20s and the, the kinds of, of the, the rapid pace, the shift in American culture. I would like to talk to you for an hour and a half about railroads. It's really, really, really important. The idea of speed, the idea of having a ticket, the idea of having a time on the wall. When do you need to get on the train? This is going to transform things. Then people are going to start flying through the air. Then when people start fighting, it's going to be in trenches. And we're going to have a war in which the Great War, if we take... The ten deadliest battles in the history of mankind, five of them were in the Great War. Throw all of this together, and we have what one historian has called the anxious decades. And of course, theology is going to be affected by this. American culture in the 1920s, we see a shift we see a shift because of uh, a number of inventions, because of uh, urbanization, that there's a shift in a population towards urban centers. We're going to go away from uh, primarily or at least <clears throat> a good number of people living in fields to living in cities. And throughout history, whenever we see people migrate to cities, we see ideas start to, it's like a cold. And I've got one here, right? With my kids, with one of your kids, I think, last Sunday, brought it home and gave it to me, right? That's what happens when we urbanize, when we get together. We start spreading things, right? We need some Purell for the brain or something because good ideas spread, but we're mostly full of bad ideas. And so as we urbanize, ideas spread. There becomes a, a cultural divide between the agrarian ethos and the urban ethos. This is, this is uh, just for American history, this is big. Gone are the, the days of the, the, the self-sustaining farmer as a prevalent piece of, of, of what it means to be American and working the land. There are people today still who are cowboys. But I don't, I, I don't know where a lot of food comes from. It comes from Ralph's. I don't know. I don't. I, um, I, my students will laugh at me because I'll, I remember asking once just before class, uh, I shouldn't have, I asked where honey came from because I couldn't figure it out. Um, and someone explained to me this thing about bees. Uh, I, I, I'm from Irvine, California, all right? Now, I think it's God's city uh, because it's perfectly planned and ordered. But this is, this, the, the big shift is happening in the 20s and 30s where all of a sudden this, this idea of, of, of the land and virtue in the land starts to, to go away. We, we begin to have this distinct American urban popular mass culture. In the 1920s and 30s, what does America start to produce? You know this. A jazz, its own style of music, its own film, its own kind of play, its own kind of art. American culture begins. You could say that prior to the 1920s, much of American popular culture was simply European culture, bastardized, a poor version of that. <laughs> but in the 20s and 30s, America, and, and there's much to be celebrated here, absolutely, the golden age of film, and jazz, and blues. But America sees itself even much more than it did in the 1620s and 30s as 
separate, as distinct, as different. Not this time as the new Israelites, but as just the new people, the new power. And come, there comes with this this ambivalence towards the past. The lost generation, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, the Southern agrarians, the utopians, all these authors uh, that are helping to be shaped, that are helping shape the 20s and 30s and being shaped by the 20s and 30s are distancing themselves from the past. And that's something that, that is very much of the urban popular ethos. And this culture and the church are going to collide. The Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, the PCUSA, still around today. It held in 1923. Uh, they looked at these fundamentals, and the question was, are we fundamentalists? And the Presbyterian Church, United States of America, uh, at Princeton was its seminary. They decided that, in fact, they were going to follow the fundamentalists. After all, not all fundamentalists had the, the dispensational eschatology or the sort of puritanical uh, moral code that, that many would come to adopt and many had adopted, but they hadn't all. And the Presbyterian Church said yes. And in 1923, all of the ministers had to state that they, uh, that they uh, held those five fundamentals from before, right? That is substitutionary atonement, infallibility, inspiration of the Bible, standard historic Christian doctrine. And this caused quite an uproar. This is the 1920s. This is, we're, we're, the, we're the new men. We're the moderns. Why are we tying ourselves to the past? Why are we tying, all of these doctrines, that's before the new revelation came. That, they didn't have railroads. They didn't have all the technology we have today. What do they know? All of that stuff about miracles and atonement, that's wonderful, but it's for another time. And so the Auburn Declaration, coming out of Auburn Seminary, wrote a document. And you can see it either in really small print there or in really small print here. <laughs> the affirmation asserted this, that the church and its leaders must safeguard liberty of thought in the teaching of its ministers. It doesn't start with the infallibility of the Bible, but the liberty of thought. Number two, it must prohibit restricting the church to rigid interpretations of Scripture and doctrine. What does that mean? Whatever they want it to mean. And they must, they must refuse to rank ecclesiastical authority above the conscience swayed by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. This is what the church is saying. What is fundamental? No rigid doctrinal blah. And you cannot have any sort of authority have sway over the individual conscience. Romanticism. Revivalism. Individualism. What comes first in America? Me. Auburn Declaration and this affirmation that they signed, oh, we're not affected by the past, we're the moderns. Uh, to which uh, uh, us looking at them, we say, you're nothing but an American. You're nothing but coming out of the American tradition of individualism and revivalism and romanticism. But they were the moderns. This stuff, by the way, was, as I mentioned, front page news. Front page news. Because while today we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of denominations, this is before many of the great schisms of uh, the 20th century. Who, who were these modernists? Well, they were the ones that signed the Auburn uh, affirmation, but probably the most famous one, and the one you can find online, there's a guy who, his name sounds, he's like he comes straight out of a Dickens novel. His name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. 
And he actually wrote a hymn that's in our hymnal. <laughs> just, just know that when he says God of grace and God of glory, that God is your God. Um, <clears throat> he uh, gave a, a sermon entitled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? Now, what's his answer? They had better not. But he knew that actually in the, the Presbyterian church and in culture, when we look at the majority of the people, when we take into account those who are still living uh, outside of the urban centers, that fundamentalism was not dead. And so this is an impassioned plea by a pastor in New York City at First Presbyterian Church to say there are fundamentalists and we are the liberals. Politically, if you know uh, anything about this time period, uh, we sometimes refer to this as the great switch, where liberal starts to mean the opposite of what it now means. Right now, now liberal is over here, but liberal used to be over there. It's very confusing. I won't, I won't hurt your brain. But to be liberal was to be free, to be open-minded, to be open to discussion, wanting to move forward and have dialogue. It was a good thing. And so Fosdick says, all we want to be is liberal. Isn't that what Americans are? A free people? A liberal people? Of course, this is going to take American liberalism down a very peculiar path, theologically and politically. He gladly played that role of the liberal. And what was this sermon about? Oh, we, something we saw in the 18th century. The question of what's more important, heresy, or what's more dangerous, heresy or schism? Well, if Fosdick was the lightning rod for the modernists, there was a man named J. Gresham Machen. Machen is a, a fascinating, fascinating character. Uh, there's a book called Defending the Faith uh, by Daryl Hart, H-A-R-T, uh, uh, which is a, a fantastic biography of this unlikely fundamentalist. He was, well, he drank, he drunk, drank, drank, drank whiskey, smoked cigars, maybe even said a bad word here or there. He was kind of rough around the edges. Reminds me of a colleague. Bright as anything, uh, a, 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 a real, uh, a man for the church on the side of the angels, and he was a fundamentalist, but boy, call him that and he'd probably punch you in the face. I'm talking about both of those guys. He was anti-prohibition. He was a pastor. He was anti-prohibition. He was against school prayer. What? You can't be a concern. No, he said, listen, we're not a Christian state. Don't get the, the church and state of ah, bad stuff. He lamented the confusion of Christian piety and, and civilization. The very unlikely voice of the fundamentalists. But he certainly was. In 1923, as this Auburn Declaration was going around, he, pu he published Christianity and Liberalism. Christianity and Liberalism. There are people outside of the Lutheran Church who write some pretty good things. <laughs> Let me just tell you. And this is one of them. This is, this is something else. It's about that thin. Christianity and Liberalism. What Machen says is, oh, yeah... Reverend Fosdick, we could debate, but the problem is that we're not talking about Christianity here. Um, I'm defending Christianity. You're defending something completely other. Christianity is Christianity, and this new liberal modernist stuff, simple, it's not Christianity. Just took an axe right to the root and said, listen, your presuppositions, your this, that's bad. And until you get rid of those, until we, we can, and you're, that's not even Christian. This caused uproar. Machen was a celebrity. Machen was speaking in front of the Supreme Court. Machen was all over the place, on the front pages of newspapers. Machen was, had the audacity to call out clergymen, who in the 20s still had a bit of clout, and say, 
No, heretics. You don't. That's don't do that. Machen said, "Yeah, if it comes to truth, you do." One of the the most interesting things about Machen is that he was beloved by two men, and you might know these two men. One was Walter Lippmann, and one was H. L. Mencken. You might know that neither of these men are great friends of the Christian Church, or the. They both thought that that at least someone had the guts to stand up for what they believe in. H.L. Uh, Mencken, a satirist, Lippmann, a um, a journalist. Uh, if we were to to put them today, there they'd be something like the I don't know Pendulet and Dan Rather of today, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> And imagine them taking, um, looking at someone who was seen as a fundamentalist and saying, that guy is someone to emulate. That guy is good for America. That's how sharp his mind was. That's how his pen was, was, was so, uh, he used it so well to get right at the issues. He didn't dance around. And so these men, Mank and Littman, said, finally, all we've been hearing from the, the First Presbyterian Church is this romanticism and revivalism. And that's why we're over here, because that stuff is for pansies, girls or something. I don't know. But at least this guy's taking it seriously. And so that's very interesting that in this climate, he would be seen as a hero. I'm... We've got more to talk about, but as we, we start to, to move on in this century to get to where we are today, there's Christianity and liberalism on your slide. I've got some quotes there. As all of this was happening, there's something else. Meanwhile, in Dayton, Tennessee, the Scopes trial. Inherit the wind... You're familiar with this? The Scopes trial. What was the Scopes trial? The Scopes monkey trial? The Scopes case? Well, simple. John Scopes, he was a biology teacher. And in Dayton, Tennessee, you were not allowed to teach evolution. And he taught evolution. And so it went to court. And they said, uh, sir, do you teach evolution? And he said, yes. And so it was pretty easy for the judge. The judge said, guilty. In terms of... Uh, the, the legal issues at hand in this case, it's not interesting. It, it took a, a week at most. He was fined $100, and then eventually they said that was excessive uh, punishment, and so that was uh, taken back. So he actually never, nothing happened to him. In the large scheme of things, legally, the Scopes case is nothing. But of course, you all have heard of that. You've read or seen Inherit the Wind, you know that the Scopes monkey trial over evolution, wherein William Jennings Bryant is, is the <clears throat> conservative playing the role uh, that he always played in history as the uh, prosecutor, became the caricature of fundamentalism. Much like a Jerry Falwell would become a caricature of fundamentalism in the 1980s. And so when people thought of the fundamentalists, who did they think of? They thought of Scope's monkey trial. They thought of a, a and we won't get into the, how it was argued, um, but it was argued theologically and rather poorly. Um, that's for another time. But the fact of the matter is that the Mesa case is this wasn't that important, and it was perhaps the most important thing, because this is where the popular divide came. Machen, everyone else, they could argue but when people looked, you know, at the newspaper, they would see, oh, fundamentalism, that's a buffoon. And a modernist, that's a guy in the dapper suit that uses his brain. Well, what's the impact? So what? Did the fundamentalists win? Yes. And no. Are fundamentalists still around today? Yes. And no. <laughs> Are you a fundamentalist? Am I a fun it's very difficult. How did liberalism win the day? And, and how did liberalism survive? It was the little root. It was the little sprout trying to come up. And it has, blow, it has grown into a tree. How, did, how was it able to do that? Well, through the manipulation of language. They dictated the conversation. 
The fundamentalists went on the defense instead of the offense. What happened to the mainline church bodies? They, they all broke. The mainline churches split. The PCUSA, J. Gresham Machen left, uh, left Princeton Seminary, started Westminster Seminary, which now is a branch in Escondido, started um, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we see this in other denominations. Well, what happens here? What's the, 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 the conservative or the non-modernist church to do in America? Where do we go from here? Well, if you can't win, what do you do? Put on a good show. And that's what the fundamentalists are going to do for the next few decades. Amy Semple McPherson, Sister Amy, do you know about her? Oh, it's a fun story. I'll tell it to you next week. How about Billy Sunday? Oh, boy, fantastic. How about uh, Father James Coughlin? Maybe you don't know about him. How about people getting on the radio and then eventually on the TV and then coming to Orange County and building these giant crystal... Uh, hmm. If we can't beat the modernists, we're going to at least put on a show. And that's what evangelicalism becomes. Now, let me end with this. Here we are, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach. LCMS congregation. And you say, Dr. Van Voris, that it was confusing and the print was small. And I say, you're welcome. <laughs> and wh where are the Lutherans? You haven't mentioned a single Lutheran, and we're here to hear about Lutherans. So before you ask questions, I'll just tell you where the Lutherans were. St. Louis? <laughs> In German towns? Minneapolis? <laughs> they were everywhere. Speaking German, keeping to themselves. Oh, and all the denominations split, and there was this huge uh, modernist uh, fundamental split in the 1930s. What happened to the Lutheran church? Nothing. The Lutherans, in some ways, were blissfully ignorant of what was happening. And in many ways, so too was the Roman Catholic church. But um, this came, would come to bite the Lutherans and the Roman Catholic Church in the 1960s, in the 1970s. This is where the Lutheran Church, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, this is where we would have our own fundamentalist uh, uh, modernist split. We didn't get away from it, we just weren't involved. So, uh, with that, I will uh, open it up to questions. Uh, this has been very quick, but let's just do five or so minutes. Um, questions about fundamentalism in America. Um, Marty's got a question right here. Dan, where would you put Walter A. Meyer? He went on to the radio in 1920, broadcast until about 1950. A book was written about him by one of his sons, A Man Spoke, A World Listened. Yeah, the, he fits into this category, uh, Walter Meyer, uh, fits into this category of, of a, a minority who were using the media uh, but not being controlled by the media. Not simply using the media to put on a show, as some were, but were actually using the media to get out uh, solid uh, conservative doctrine. Not Lutheran, but solid and conservative doctrine. So there were men like that. So there, there were um, a number of, of radio programs of televangelists, of radio evangelists, um, circuit preachers. Uh, it's just that the medium became so enticing that it began to take over. And it became more about the show and the man than the message. Got two questions over here. There's a gentleman in the back of the room. He's kind of scruffy. You're not to give him the microphone. He's a, he's a student of mine, and we've talked about these things. Um, Spurgeon's downgrade controversy. Does that come into this in any Charles way? Charles Spurgeon? Yeah. And, uh, the, the, he, wrote, he wrote a uh, paper that appeared, I guess, in a publication that he had a weekly paper and it, it caused a uh, uproar. It was called the downgrade controversy. Yeah, Spurgeon is a little bit before all of this. 
the 19th century is going to see the beginnings of modern modernism or liberalism, uh, but it's still sort of germinating in, in, in Germany and other places. Um, so, yeah, Spurgeon is uh, a sort of proto-fundamentalist in, in the good sense. Um, I, like I said, I, I'm looking at this historically. I'm looking at the broad historic Christian church. Um, I would say these, these men, uh, for your sake, are not Lutherans. You will find things that are antithetical to Lutheran theology. But when it comes to cultural and Christianity and conservatism and liberalism in the church, there are the men like Machen and Spurgeon and others who are, are to be um, applauded by those on, on the right. Um, apparently there's no end to isms. Isn't it all wrapped up in rationalism? Well, rationalism, yes, it, rationalism, the using of the ratio, the using of the mind, um, is, is where all of our isms come from. Because we, they, they, like spiders, we spin the web of isms uh, out of our brain. Um, are some of them good? I think so. But is it, is it this ism is right and this ism is wrong? Is it like a light switch that's on-off? Uh, no, usually it's more of a spectrum. Some isms are better than others. If rationalism, if reason becomes the ultimate rule by which everything must, well, and it's, it's, it's run a certain way, then, yeah, then you are, you'll become anti-supernatural, right? And, and then everything's going to start to fall. Um, but rationalism is, is in many ways far too broad to say good or bad. It depends what ism you're in with that. It's, it's, very, it's very tricky, I understand, especially in a pair setting. I'm right, you're wrong? Okay, all right. All right. Well, we've got three more weeks of this. Um, uh, thank you very much. And uh, next week we will talk about uh, the church in America putting on a good show. Have a lovely Sunday.